months ago, we here at Unorthodox were asked to be part of an important conference at the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History. The idea was to celebrate a new book called Jewish Priorities by inviting a bunch of really smart Jews to tell us what we should focus on moving forward. What should our Jewish priorities be? But then October 7th happened, and it seemed like our priorities, really our entire world, completely changed, which only made the conference more urgent. So a while back, we gathered at the beautiful Weizmann Museum in Philadelphia, and we did what Jews do best, especially when times are tough. We talked. We talked about Israel and about Gaza, about Jewish storytelling and Jewish philanthropy, about the environment and religion and everything else that matters right now. The conversations weren't always easy. Sometimes, hey, we're Jews, we disagreed. But the conversations were always provocative and interesting, and we're happy to share them here with you. If you like what you hear, you should check out Jewish Priorities, edited by David Hazoni. And you should also visit the Weizmann Museum in Philly and their truly amazing collection. But now, on to the conversations. So there are several things we need to prepare our kids for because they go whether to high school or to university campuses, they need to be able to face some of the hostilities which center around some central ideas. And one of them is Israel being an apartheid state or Jews being a colonial people and not a minority or being anti-Israel or anti-Zionist isn't equivalent to being anti-Semitic. And I think these are some fundamental uh, issues that our children, um, whether they come out of Hebrew day schools or you know Sunday school synagogues and a variety of other programs where they are exposed to Jewish education, need to get these things down as well. I think that's really central. This is Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th. And this is one of the voices you'll hear on this panel called, We're Just Getting Started. It featured panelists Yosef Abramowitz, Roya Hakakian, Tal Keenan, Andres Spokoini, and was moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick, with my unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. This panel turned toward hope, whether it's possible and where we can find it. I would like to put all of our panelists on the spot and ask you to introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do, and share one thing you're hopeful about. Nope. We'll start with yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, by um, alphabetical order, my name starts with A. So, uh, so I'm uh, Andres Pocoini. I'm the uh, CEO and president of the Jewish Founders Network. And um, that is basically, as some of you know, um, sort of a self-support group for victims of wealth. Uh, <laughs> we work with founders, philanthropists. Um, and, 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 and here's what gives me some, some hope in this moment, which is a sort of a fuch a la fuch. It's a paradoxical hope. I see a lot of people uh, feeling lonely and feeling betrayed. I'm one of them. Many of my of people I consider partners in the philanthropic world, in the secular philanthropic world. Um, I, I think they, they, they said things, or they didn't say anything, which is, which is horrendous. Um, you know, donors in the universities are upset and feel betrayed, and with good reason. But I think that the, the silver lining of that 
is that we're turning inward in a good way. I think that we, we were discovering that the, what we were looking for in the outside by working with secular organizations, by trying to sort of wanting to be accepted by groups that didn't really want us or, or wanted us but wanted a piece of us or wanted a version of us, I think that now we're realizing that um, we, we have, like in that Hasidic story, that the treasure was in your own house. You know, he goes all the way to find the treasure, the treasure is inside you. So I think what's giving me hope is the funders that I work with turning inwards and feeling this deep sense of connection and the commonality of faith with other Jews. Hi, I'm Roya Hakakian, and um, my essay is in the book, and I write, and Andre, two weeks ago, liked one of my tweets a great deal and, and, uh, and reposted it uh, many, many times. So that's, uh, at the moment, since I recognize that this is my claim to fame. Um, I, I, it's a very interesting question that you're asking because I have spent the last two weeks being uh, despairing and feeling incredibly shattered. Um, and I guess uh, my reasons for being shattered perhaps has a uh, complexity that most of you, yours doesn't, which is that um, I lived in Iran, I uh, fled Iran after the, you know, living post-revolution for several years, and I thought I was done. I, I thought all of this was behind me, and the fact that I feel like all that past is catching up, uh, not just with me, but the, with the rest of you, uh, gives me a particular sense of despair. Um, while I agree with everything that Andre said, that this, this moment um, can be our greatest opportunity, as such moments have been in the past in Jewish history, um, for revival, for a redefinition, for a re-examination, I also feel that certain important uh, voices and people in this world who were previously not capable of hearing um, what the Israeli predicament was, um, why it was incredibly difficult for Israel to live where it does and to negotiate um, in the way that it was with its neighbors is, is in fact a huge disparity between, I don't want to call it civilization because I, you know, I, I don't consider the other parties civilized, but but between two completely different uh, orders of um, moral values. And, and I think certain people around the world um, who are not Jewish, who, are, um, who were not previously open to hearing this message, have now heard it. And I think um, I, I wish it didn't take a tragedy like this for us to be heard. Um, but it did, and, and I think uh, the other piece is that it's coming together with a broader universal problem, which is the problem of Islamic fundamentalism. So um, 
uh, I think the events of the past two weeks somehow s have sown the, the problem of it, Israel being unable to strike a peace deal with its neighbors to, um, you know, uh, to the protesters who show up with black flags and call for jihad in London and in other parts of the world. And, and it's true that Europeans don't want to, and Westerners don't want to agree at the moment. They're not ready to admit this, um, but they recognize that what Israel is suffering uh, is also what they're suffering and the suffering, particularly the kind of suffering that they've been ignoring for a long time. And before you answer the question, I'm going to speak on behalf of our photographer and ask you to remove your name tag so that you, we may take beautiful photos and commemorate this event. Uh, and now, please proceed with optimism. Thank you, Leo. Yes, it was. Uh, my name is Talkin. Mine was optimistic. My name is Talkin. I'm an amateur here. I, I work in airport infrastructure, but occasionally uh, pause to uh, write about the Jews. I think this is a clarifying moment, right? It's a, it's a tragedy. First and foremost, it's a tragedy. Um, but it's a clarifying moment for us. And I paused to Google just so I could get the name right. Have a look afterwards if you want. Max Naumann. Max Naumann headed a group of uh, Jewish Nazis in Germany uh, from 1933 until they were finally disbanded, not of their own accord, but by the Gestapo in the late 1930s. Uh, this was the group that uh, was looking at the Ostjuden, uh, the Jews, East of Germany, as they, they were, we're Germans first. Yeah, we happen to be Jewish, uh, but but we're, we're we're Germans first of all, and we're trying to find and parse all sorts of distinctions uh, that would allow them to see themselves as accepted in some other group. And I think in the previous panel, you you got Brett to say something I think very uh, very prescient is we're always trying to get invited to somebody else's party when we have such a wonderful party going on uh, right here uh, w within us. So I, I wrote a book called God is in the Crowd a couple of years ago. And there, among the, the, the many uh, mistakes in that, in, in that book, one that Liel helped, uh, helped me see is I, I was very dismissive of left-wing anti-Semitism uh, in that book. Just didn't seem like a, 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 a real thing to me. I was wrong about that. Uh, when David, when you talk about enemies, it's not just it's not just Hamas, right? Hamas happens to be in a position where they're next to us and they're armed and they've got their ideology and all that, but that's not the only way to be our enemy. Uh, we do have enemies uh, outside of Israel, outside of the Middle East as well. Uh, this, I think, is a clarifying moment for a lot of Jews where you can't point to the Ostuden uh, anymore, or it's becoming very, very difficult. Uh, to do that. This is fundamentally about the Jews. The people who were killed on October 7th were killed because they are Jewish, period. The fact that we don't get a hearing on college campuses in the United States the way any other group would and has uh, when they go through a tragedy is because we are Jewish. It's becoming very, very difficult to ignore that. I got the wake-up call a little bit late after, after the book was published, but that, that was that. And the last one I'll say is... Uh, you know, I, I grew up in this country, uh, I think, as, uh, as a member of perhaps the first generation who really n did not have to contend with anti-Semitism as a real thing. I never experienced it in my life. I grew up mainly in New Hampshire, not among Jewish people. I look pretty Jewish. 
I, I never experienced anti-Semitism, never felt like it was, I was different from anybody else or treated uh, any differently from, uh, from anybody else. And a lot of what motivated me to write this book is I, I had this uh, you know, kind of th thought in my, in my mind, and I, th I think it's still there, is that without anti-Semitism, it's very difficult for us to stay coherent as a people. Anti-Semitism has been a, a bond for us. And I was looking, and I'm still looking for a, a much more positive uh, uh, and much more genuine reason to be Jewish and to continue identifying it. I don't think that should end. However, when it does rear its head, again, there's an opportunity in every crisis. This is reminding us we are Jews, whether we like it or not, and I love it, but whether we like it or not, we are Jews. Uh, and there is, there are enemies out there that are enemies specifically because uh, we are Jewish. Let's, let, let's use that again, uh, yeah, it's not something I'd like to rely on, but now that it's reared, it's reared its head, let's use it to remind ourselves that we are one people who share a fate. Bring us home, Yossi. My name is Yossi. I'm a Jewish educator that develops and finances solar fields in Israel, in Africa, and in Gaza. Optimism. Well, I'm also here as a very proud Abba of another author, Halel Silverman, who stole the show. <laughs> now, if you read her chapter, it's worth reading, uh, you'll know that she was the one arrested with my wife, Rabbi Susan Silverman, about a decade ago that brought about the uh, unimplemented Kotel deal that made a lot of progress. And that gives me optimism. She's also, along with her siblings, third-generation IDF veteran, Zionist and liberal. That gives me a lot of optimism to be able to combine that. And just how quickly we have amnesia. She's also one of those people who would, at the, in the Tel Aviv protest, jump over and stop traffic on the eye alone. And so, with leg, of course. Optimism is that these young people for 39 weeks consecutively were fighting what they call the Second War of Israel's Independence. And it, it was glorious and powerful and authentic and Zionist and uh, we go to the Jerusalem ones and Jewish, diverse and Jewish and patriotic and Zionist and energetic and the future. And so when this god-awful thing happened on October 7th, in a sense, the Zionism and patriotism of the young people from the demonstrations is one of the reasons why the units are oversubscribed. The battle units are at 110 to 150% oversubscribed because of people volunteering. And that gives me a lot of hope as well. Hi, I'm Dara Horn. If you know me and my work, you know that I love teaching people the amazing stories of living Jewish culture and heritage, and not just all the bad stuff that happens to us. 
I've been working with the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History to develop an in-school curriculum to do just that. We're piloting it now in public schools. If you want to help bring an antidote to anti-Semitism into your kids' schools, contact the Weizmann's educators at theweizmann.org slash Dara. So, Roya, I want to come back to you. You you have a line in this book that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and if you don't mind me quoting you, back to you. You write, ultimately, it is not in the sameness of our stories that we have remained one people, but in the experience of shared brokenness, of our common ruptures. So tell us a little bit about this and, and what we have to learn about each other and what we can learn from each other. Um, this is a big conversation that um, I have been having, or actually not having, because uh, uh, we can't, uh, you know, agree uh, so much so that, um, um, you know, the conversation just doesn't take place. But, um, but I believe that uh, many within. Uh, the diaspora from the Middle East, Jews from the Middle East, um, and particularly the Iranian community that I know better, um, have felt under the pressure somehow, uh, and, and this is regardless of the fact that they continue to practice you know, in their own synagogues and you know, to have their own music, but they've felt under the pressure to streamline their own Jewish narrative to fit with the rest of the Ashkenazi narrative. So, you know, we didn't leave Iran because Iran became Germany. Um, we left Iran because Iran was simply unlivable and Jews, unlike others, had an opportunity to leave. Um, it doesn't mean that Iranian Jews were not discriminated against. But Iranian Jews were not singled out to be discriminated against. And so when I talk about allowing our narratives to stand on their own and keep their own exclusivity and create then a common, broader narrative for all of us, it's to say that we don't have to be alike in order to fit together that we can remain the unique people that we are in, within our own communities. We can preserve the individual traditions and become this greater community that we call Am Israel, right? And, and so I think it's, it's been a very dangerous move um, and, and a certain pressure that I see very much within, especially uh, perhaps the Mizrahi community to try to kind of upscale itself or its narrative to fit the dominant Ashkenazi narrative. And not that I think these narratives are at odds with each other, but I think we should just create a space, um, which I think there is, and, and de-emphasize um, a likeness in the interest of uh, coming together in diversity. Andre, um I have a question for you. I, you. You spoke a little bit about the, what do you call it, a support group 
for people stricken by wealth. Um, that's wonderful. Uh, I'll try to remember this. Uh, in, in your conference in, in March, the keynote speaker uh, was, I believe the title of the New York Times gave him, the man with, a, with the biggest checkbook in America, Darren Walker, the CEO of the Ford Foundation, which has Lord knows how many gazillions of dollars uh, under, under his care. Um, and he gave, he gave this speech back then that I, I thought was quite lovely. He spoke about the need of all of us to overcome the toxicity of the public debate and really come together. And yet here's the Ford Foundation just a couple of days ago releasing a truly deplorable statement that uh, hits every note that David mentioned in his thing. It's the equivocating, it's the victim blaming, it's all the bad things. Um, philanthropy is a business of, of, of coming together, of bringing people actively yeah. together. Yeah. When you see a partner like this or a person you thought was a partner, what do you feel? Are you, do you uh, feel regret, do you feel heartbreak, do you feel anger? All, all, all of the above. It's extremely painful because, because I, I think, I believe in calling in rather than calling out. So when the opportunity comes up to bring somebody like that, who, who by the way, it wasn't just coming to the Jeff and conference, he wants to engage with the Jewish community, he wants to go to Israel, but, you know, with UJA, not just with, you know, the New Israel Fund, not that anything wrong with that, but with a mainstream Jewish organization, wants to engage. So I believe in giving folks the chance and engaging with somebody that seems genuine in the desire to to uh, engage. And then you see things like that that makes you wonder um, to what extent people are committed to that engagement or whether they want to have it both ways. Now, I understand that a guy like, like Darren Walker, you know, and, and by the way, it's not him. We have a huge problem in the secular philanthropic community because what's happening is that, that they get a ton of pressure from the sort of, for lack of a better term, the woke crowd, the, 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 the pro-Palestine crowd, to condemn the, uh, the uh, occupation. So when, when they publish a, 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 a statement that doesn't mention occupation, they think they're being fair. They're being, so what I'm trying to say is that the discourse is so tilted to one side that it's extremely hard to bring it back. So I'm, I would say I share all, the, all those emotions that you said from you know, heartbreak, you know, a, a, frankly, a sense of betrayal to a certain extent. But I go past that. I say, okay, maybe, as I was saying before, maybe it's the time to look inward. Maybe it's the time to say, let's, uh, uh, I mean, we're part of a society, so I'm not advocating to go back to the shtetl. But to be clear about what our priorities are in terms of what do we do with our philanthropy, who our partners are, um, I, would, I would like to see what the next step of the Closing Your Checkbook campaign is. You know, now we have this campaign about folks not donating to universities. I think it, uh, the people are in favor, some people are not. But I think that the question is, okay, so then what? In other words, I would like to see, okay, let's not donate to Harvard, they don't need the money anyways, but let's make sure that the Jewish universities, the Hebrew U, the Tel Aviv University, are the best in the world. So, so when, right. that is worthy of an applause. Yeah. Uh, so when, when, when people, and I assume this is pretty much 83.8% of the emails you've been getting since October 7th, uh, is from people in your network saying, 
okay, I really want to do something and I'm in a privileged position where I can. Uh, and I'm asking you, guide me, what, what should be the priority? So in, in, in two or three kind yeah. of notes, what, yeah. where should we direct all this energy so, and all this racism? By the way, those of you that want the long version, go to the JFN website. I've been sending almost daily updates with where to give. I would say there's three or four main categories. First, uh, trauma, relief, mental health, huge need. Second, support for the war effort. You know, there's a whole debate whether the IDF needs equipment or doesn't need, but there are things that are definitely needed for the war effort. As David said, it's, it's everybody's war. It's not just the IDF war. For some of it, it's personal. We all have people there fighting, but it's important. Third thing, the fight against anti-Semitism, anti-Israel is very important. We, believe me, we haven't seen anything. What's coming is much worse. Um, so we can't do that. And I think that the fourth is to, to work on the reconstruction on uh, amidut, how you say amidut, uh, resilience of, of, of the society, which is very physical. We, there are 12 communities that have to be rebuilt. Like uh, Kibbutz Be'eri is like a ruin. It's like Chernobyl. Like it has to be fully uh, rebuilt, uh, humanly and, 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 and physically. But the one thing I would say is it's the time to be strategic. This is going to be a very long crisis. There's going to be need for funding, not just now, but for months, maybe years. So funders need to make sure that they, that they pace themselves, but that they also realize that this is the rainy day. This is not to say, oh, I'm going to you know, cut a little bit my gift to the local school. No, this is a time to tap into your reserve, to tap into your endowment, to go past the 5%. This is where the philanthropic community needs to, needs to stand up. So speaking of coming together, Tal, you've written about American Jews, Israeli Jews, and sort of some, the, what can appear as sort of the chasm between them. I think we've seen a lot of American Jews waking up um, in these past few weeks. Those who might not have considered themselves super connected to Israel are suddenly now activated and they're, they're wondering um, how to mobilize. So I'm just curious, how, how do you think what happened and the effects that we're seeing, particularly in the diaspora, in terms of language and um, just sort of the just sort of disheartening way in which our culture is, is dealing with this? Um, how will this change the relationship, do you think, between American Jews and Israelis? I think there's been a, a growing recognition even before October 7th that we are in the same boat. Um, this, this is, I, I think, just been a huge catalyst. The leadership, you know, and I'm not taking a position for or against anything, but the Close the Checkbook uh, campaign at universities has really kind of drawn a, a spotlight. This is a Jewish issue, right? Mark, Mark Rowan is not Israeli. Bill Ackman is not Israeli. This is a, a, a Jewish issue. I think there are many avenues or kind of many bridges between uh, North American and Israeli Jewry that can be that can be formed. And I don't think any one of them is is, is better than the others. But again, I, I think repeating what I said earlier, th this is definitely a point uh, for optimism. I do think we'll see those bridges uh, you know, built and widened.
excited to celebrate Jewish American Heritage Month this and every May. I take every chance I get to celebrate everything that's great about Jewish heritage and culture. I take pride in how America's Jewish community in all its forms has both shaped and been shaped by our nation. Now is a great time to remind ourselves and share with our neighbors just how vibrant and wonderful the stories of American Jewish life are. No matter your religious beliefs, your political affiliation, your age, or your favorite podcast, JAHM is something we can all lift up together. Learn how at JewishAmericanHeritage.org. So I want to stay with you for a second, Tal, because you're not just an entrepreneur and author, also pilot in the Israeli Air Force, and, and a person uh, among the many things I admire about you is, is the ability to formalize a plan of action. You're one of the most concrete people I know. Uh, sometimes that infuriates me, but in moments like this, it really inspires me. Uh, and I turn to you, if, if you were, were talking here about kind of pulling together efforts, and, and Andre's had a really concrete sort of like, okay, here are the categories. From your vantage point, what are some of the very, as we say, tachless things, very concrete things that we should be organizing to do right now? If you were in charge of the, uh, the task force, the, the ministry of getting shit done. Are you talking about building bridges between Israel? I'm talking about whatever you consider as a top priority right now. I'm being deliberately vague. Yeah, no, look, so I mean, I, I think top priority right now is, first of all, we need to win on the ground. First of all, before before anything else, um, that's in a very unapologetic way. You know, at the end of the day, you know, to be to be clear, you know, as Liel said, I flew in the Air Force for 18 years. I'm not surprised that there's controversy around who hit that hospital. I know probably a third of the people who fly in the Air Force today. I can't think of a single person who would carry out an order to bomb a civilian hospital. That just doesn't happen period, but I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that the BBC and a lot of people, uh, a lot of people around the world have an agenda to cast us in a certain light, and that's okay, and it's time to put on the blinders, get what we need to get done, done now. And it's gonna be hard, it's gonna be heartbreaking. To be clear, this will not be a, a, a costless war. You know, going into Gaza, there's a, there's a reason, by the way, we've been waiting for this attack from, from Hamas for 20 years. They planned it very well. To say that they're cowards is ridiculous. To say that they're stupid is ridiculous. This is a very well-planned, very courageous, very well-orchestrated. Their agenda is to kill Jews. That's what that we disagree with. The implementation was actually uh, uh, incredible, incredible. We should not minimize. This is going to be terrible going in. We need to steal ourselves for it and do it, first of all. And again, I think in the United States, any effort that we can make here to uh, frame this in the appropriate light, uh, the way I, I hope I just did, and uh, I think there, there, there's a lot more to it. Let's get behind the Israeli government. Again, there are very few divisions left within Israel right now. Let's make sure there aren't divisions between uh, uh, American Jewry and Israel on this, and get on board with letting us win, because we have to win. We have to win here. And, and to be clear, I can just make one point on that, because a, a number of people approached me on this, on, on this topic. Um, one of the points of Jewish equivocation that I hear on this is, aren't we just perpetuating more generations of 
hatred toward Israel in the Middle East if we go and do what we have to do in uh, in Gaza. And what I'll put to you is, you know, we, we, we've had a, you know, a very uh, kind of refined Ashkenazic leadership in Israel from the beginning. And Jews of, uh, of Eastern descent in Israel have always kind of looked at us a little bit uh, sideways. And I think they've been right that you guys don't get the Middle East. You imported your post-Enlightenment sensibilities from Europe to the Middle East. And there's just a, 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 a point that you've been missing this entire time. We're on the precipice of a peace deal with the Saudis. To be clear, a gentle, ambiguous victory in the Gaza Strip will make the chances of that peace deal go down. A crushing defeat, and I'm gonna say it not because it's our objective, we don't want civilian casualties in Gaza, but a crushing defeat with civilian casualties will increase the chances of a peace deal. Because the Middle East has one rule, you bet on strong horses, not on compassionate horses, not on uh, uh, gentle horses, on strong horses. I'm not saying that we behave this way, but let's be clear, after killing 800,000 of his own people, Bashar Assad is sitting pretty in Damascus right now. That is the rules of the Middle East. It's not Europe, it's not North America, it's the Middle East. We have a very difficult, very difficult line to tread because our Jewish sensibilities do not allow that. We, don't, we cannot behave like that. But on the other hand, we can't afford to lose this. So I think we all need to get behind it. That's the short answer. I, I know there's not much time left, so I'm gonna leave it with the short answer. Pretty good answer. So, Yossi. We're talking about the path forward. Um, and your focus and indeed your contribution to the book is called Toward a Green Zionism. And so obviously we're talking about what you know the, the the topic of the moment right but you're sort of thinking along broader visions for the future as well in terms of environmental issues so can you walk us through that a little bit and then also explain how you see that alongside what we're dealing with today as sort of two issues that we need to be tackling when i just want to respond to a, a couple of things i i agree uh, as a member of gfn with what you said uh, but it's not just philanthropy, impact investments. Our businesses, one of them, you know, we're gonna have some challenges over the next six months. So uh, look at your portfolios and make sure that uh, Israeli businesses are also part of that. Uh, in terms of we have to win on the ground, absolutely. But I'm, David, uh, you, you're my teacher, you're my friend, uh, and thank you for the invitation. I share your primordial Jewish rage, but I don't share your conclusion that we're done. And so here it goes, we have to win on the ground, but we have to win the hearts and the minds. And I think, George, your, your point about, you know, uh, the young people, giving the young people the tools and the backing to be able to go and fight that fight, uh, we're, we're, continuously the Jewish community has always been behind the curve on media and young people. And th this is the time to, to ramp up for the battle of hearts and minds. Jonathan and I were talking that you, there, there should be three camps, not Israel and Palestinians, but is, Israelis, Palestinians, and Hamas. And we have, to dis, we have to cut the link between Palestinians and Hamas. If you're in favor of a two-state solution, there cannot be a Hamas. And, and we have to be able to get that through. And part of the community relations also that's missing is that we, we, maybe we should be done with our strategies, but, but why aren't any of the Jewish JCRC's defense organizations, even Israeli leadership, Jews of color? At this point, you know, it's still Ashkenazi men who represent the face of Israel and the Jewish community, essentially, and everything. And so, you know, 
all of my African partners have checked in with so much love, with so much love and support, as well as university presidents uh, from African American universities. We we have to. I'm done doing the old Jewish communal stuff now. In terms of the environment and the green, like. It's so hard to think, right, about climate change when we're fighting a war. But you know what? I'm going to be the busiest guy in the state of Israel very shortly. Why? Because after Nasrallah b blows up the gas rig off of the Zikron coast, then someone's going to say, oh, what should we be doing? And so... We're, we're in this untenable situation, right? We're going to end up with not one, but two commission of inquiries. One is, how did this even get to this point in, in which a surprise attack on the 50th anniversary of the surprise attack? The other is, who's the genius that moved the gas rig out of the range of Hezbollah missiles all the way up to the continental shelf, which you can see from Haifa, and put it all within range of those 200,000 missiles that is gonna get hit. And so when there's wastewater going into the Mediterranean from Gaza, guess who shuts down their desalinization plants, right? When that missile knocks out the gas rig, by the way, Tamar field is off. They've turned it off as a precaution. When Nasrallah takes out... I'm sorry, explain to Marfield. Okay, there's, a, there's a, uh, the first gas rig, which is, I think, 30 miles off the Gaza coast, uh, owned by Chevron. So the Israelis had to order it closed because if it gets hit by a missile, guess what, folks? The cancerous condensate comes shut down. You know, people will die just from that in a big way. And all of, or 80% of our drinking water is no longer accessible. They hit, when they hit the gas rig, right, someone in the prime minister's office go, oh, maybe there's a different and smarter way to be able to do energy. And so in an age of daring terrorists and medium and long-range missiles, the smartest thing to do is a distributed solar with storage. And we're blessed with sunshine. And Israel's at the bottom of the OECD when it comes to renewables. And so, you know, when we look at our region, it's, we're tiny. We all know how tiny we are. So the water issues and the air issues and the energy issues, Herzl had a vision that we were all going to, that the future state was all going to be green energy. And we'd have so much green energy, we would share it with our neighbors in the interests of peace. Isn't that astounding? 122 years ago, writing about it. And so, we're not going to have a viable state if, if we don't have our energy security. And we've built our entire energy security on things that go boom. And so for climate and environment, we're already what's called a hot spot. We're at over two degrees Celsius, what we're trying to avoid getting to globally. The refugee issues in our area, they're gonna see that we're green and we have water. It's a national security threat. So unfortunately, Maybe now someone's going to realize, oh, how interconnected we are with our neighborhood. And so we have to win the ground war against Hamas. But you know what? We live in a neighborhood, an interdependent neighborhood, 
and we need to be thinking about the day after. And the day after involves water security, food security, border security, and energy security. And solar is the way to go. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much for this. And, and also for the reminder that Herzl, uh, as, as is so often the case, got there first. He, by the way, also got there first with the tram, which also took 122 years for Jews. You and know. he said that all the cars in the future state were going to be electric with battery swap stations 122 years ago, well before. You, you heard it here first. Tell your kids this. That the Zionist movement is a visionary, progressive, environmental movement, and we're fighting right now to defend our existence, but the existence can come, we can implement what the original vision was, perhaps a little bit better than we currently yes, are. Yes, Andrew, jump in, and then I have a question for Roy, and then we, we have to yeah, wrap I, up. I, I, one thing, totally agree on the, on the uh, environmental stuff. Um, you know, Israel is in the crux of the environmental problems. But I, I, I want to pick on something else you said, you know, about hearts and mind. And, and I just want to share a perplexity with you. I really don't have an answer. It's more of a question that I ask myself. I'm starting to think that if images of dead babies and all the stuff we saw in September, in, uh, in uh, October 7th, didn't change hearts and minds, probably nothing will. So I'm, 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 I'm like wondering, and, and, and again, I don't have the answer. I'm sharing with you what's going on in my head now. Are we, are we wasting our time and money in trying to convince people and win hearts and minds that are already lost? Now, on the other hand, you know, we saw something that never happened before. The President of the United States went to Israel in the middle of a war to show solidarity. The Prime Minister of Britain, the Prime Minister of Germany, the Prime Minister of Italy. So there, yeah, there are people that get it, you know, and are influential, but, but I think we, we collectively, we spend too much time, money, and effort in sort of hearts and minds of people that are just lost, and we need to actually fight them rather than trying to convince them and protect ourselves from them. I think, I think that distinction is very important. We, the entire economy of campus advocacy, in Jewish campus advocacy in the US today, is north of $300 million that we collectively spend in pro-Israel engagement and Jewish engagement in campus. There's something that is not adding up in terms of the money we're spending and the results we're obtaining. So maybe our results are not realistic. Maybe we need to say, going back to the point of looking in inwards, sort of, you know, just sharing with you my own perplexities. So we started with hope. I want to end with action. One rapid fire question for all of you. Give us one thing that everyone here in this room can go home and do. We'll start, should we start, the, should we go the other direction? Oh, actually, Roy, you have one. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to say this in response to Tal. I, I agree with the notion of turning inward. And I agree with, you know, uh, the fact that obviously we have to win the war on the ground. But there is another war that we are forgetting. Um, the rift between the American Jewish community and the Israel, you know, people in Israel, in part occurred over Israel, right? 
you know, what Israel was. Was Israel an occupier, an apartheid state, or not? So it occurs to me, in addition to everything that Dara so uh, wonderfully puts in her book, um, and I, as a mother who has sent her children to schools, have experienced, we are leaving the stories of real contributions of Jews out of K through 12 American education. And that's abominable because if we agree or allow our history, the history of our living to be erased, then we have allowed everybody else to erase us. So, so we need to inject that into the conversation. And the second thing that we must do is, you know, just like we send our kids to Sunday Hebrew school and we train them to read the Haftorah and, and you know, learn the holidays and learn Hebrew or whatever else, we need to prepare our children for certain conversations, which is going to hit them when they arrive on campus or before. Is Israel an apartheid state? Are Jews colonizers? Uh, you know, what is the short history of how uh, Israel, you know, 1948 went down? And I'm telling you these because over the past two weeks, I've had to provide my own kids with these answers. So whatever education we're providing, and maybe the $300 million that is going into the campuses needs to be spent within the Jewish community to, to teach our own children certain fundamental arguments that are very difficult to make, but once they get it, they will be the ones, at least not to suffer on campuses and be able to be a united front. Amazing. $300 million is about a million firearms. That is the beginning of a solution. Everyone be very, very quick. Andre, you're next. Yeah, I think that two action items one is Jewish education, I agree with you, 100%. We need to, in the face of anti-Semitism, we need to recover the joy, the pride of being Jewish. Um, the second thing is, sorry, very immediate. There are urgent needs in Israel. I, I would beseech everybody to focus on them and try to fund intelligently all those needs. Baruch Hashem, you could go on JFN and find more about this. Tal Kainan, 30 seconds or less. Uh, go home, find one more way that you're not engaged with the Jewish people or one way that you are engaged that you can fortify. Do it now, seize the day, time, money, whatever it is, whatever other resource you have, now is the time. Three things. One, give $10 million to the young content creators, the digital ones, and the marketing budget. Two, Reinforce the notion that we are an indigenous people to Israel and the, and the Middle East. Like, we, so like, how are we losing this war? It's clear as day, the archaeology is there. Um, number three, remember that the greatest trauma that the state of Israel experienced, and everybody lost someone, was, during, was the Yom Kippur War. And, and the trauma was so great. And if you would have said right after the war, Yetov, right? That within three years, Sadat would address the Knesset, we, we wouldn't have believed it because we were, we were too traumatized and there was no equation that would have allowed that to happen. And so what are the steps that we need to take for the day after so that our rage doesn't overtake our ability to positively influence history. 
This has been Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th, a podcast produced by the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia, in conjunction with Unorthodox and Tablet Studios. If you like the show, you should check out the book Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People. The panels were moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick, along with my Unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. The podcast was edited by Quinn Waller. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.